Welcome to the podcast of Unity Fort Worth. In it, you'll hear this week's message and meditation. If you'd like to hear and see the complete service, you can always find it at unityfortworth.org or on the Unity Fort Worth Facebook page. Unity Fort Worth focuses on positive and practical Christianity with a willingness to explore the entire world of religion and spiritual thought. Unity Fort Worth streams live every Sunday at 11 a.m. Thanks for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. So unveiling wisdom is the topic of chapter three and four in Siddhartha. And it's a really fascinating two chapters. Those of you who read along probably realize it's very short, isn't it? Just a few pages, but it's packed with a lot of wisdom. And it's about unveiling the wisdom that we have within us. And Siddhartha starts to understand at this point that what he was seeking outside of himself so far hasn't worked. He needs to start looking somewhere else. And so, so far, he has left his cocoon of a perfect life, right? He has decided to leave with his good friend, Govinda, and go into the woods to live with the Samanas, the ascetics, for a number of years, anywhere between three and seven years, according to the scholars that study the history of the Buddha. And at some point, at the end of chapter two, there is this word of Gautama, that's who is called the Buddha, the enlightened one, which is probably very strange for some of you to hear, wait a minute, Siddhartha is still becoming the Buddha, and now we're talking about the Buddha, right? Anyone was surprised by that? That all of a sudden there was a Gautama, a Buddha, an enlightened one, that was before the enlightened one. But it's actually not that. If you're familiar with Hindu scripture, Buddhist scriptures, you will actually recognize that in Eastern philosophy, it's much more common to see those gurus, those spiritual leaders, actually having learned what they, what they teach from someone else. There's much less the expectation that Siddhartha would have been born in this perfect light and he didn't have to learn anything. Whereas in the Western world, in Christianity, for example, it's a much more common way of looking at the life of Jesus Christ that he, or he didn't have to learn anything. He was born immaculately, right? And there was nothing that he needed to do in order to become who he then was, according to the gospel. So we have here Gautama, um, a simple monk who had a following, and as it was tradition back then in northern India, um, those monks usually would be dependent on whatever the people in the villages would give them to eat. That is still tradition to this day in many orders, in many monk orders in India, Pakistan, or in other areas, Tibet, where if someone gives up his whole life, they would dedicate it and they would surrender to whatever they're given every day. They would just go into the village, have a little bowl, and whatever the villagers were able to spare, they would get. 
and that's all they're getting to eat and drink that day. And Gautama was exactly like that, and he lived that lifestyle. He, he did that with his following. He had rather a large following. And the two Samanas, that's referring to Siddhartha and Govinda, his friend, they realized that there was something special about Gautama. He had this perfection of calm, quietness of appearance. There was no searching, no desire, no imitation, no effort to be seen, only light and peace. Resonates, right? Resonates with many of us. Those of us who studied under some of the Eastern philosophies are very familiar with this idea because that's exactly how we would recognize a Maharishi, a great teacher, a spiritual leader. But even in the Western world, if we think of Jesus Christ, if we think of, think of Abraham or Jacob, any of the great spiritual teachers, Muhammad, may peace be upon him, anyone, really, that we recognize, we kind of are recognizing them by these qualities. And aren't these qualities that we're looking for sometimes or all the time? Aren't these qualities that we associate with having that state of being awakened, being a perfect peace at all times? I'm making a lot of noise here today, so let's see if we can fix it. So here is, a, again, another picture. We can say it's Gautama. We can also say it's Buddha. <laughs> it's kind of hard to tell, right? But it's very common that we have a spiritual leader that's recognized as someone who is awakened, has all these qualities, and then there will be these followers who will just follow him along. They will give up everything. They will give up their families. They will give up their possessions. And they will just follow along this one person and his or her teachings. Interesting enough, again, if you just noticed it, you, you, that's why I'm recommending reading it very, very slowly. You may have missed this one here. With a soft yet firm voice, the exalted one, that's Gautama, spoke, taught the four main doctrines, taught the eightfold path. Ever heard of that? Yeah, a few of you, right? That's actually known as some of the major Buddhist teachings, right? So we have the Four Noble Truths, Dukkha, Samudaya, Siroda, Niroda, and Maga, which is all about the truth of suffering, the truth of the origin of suffering, the truth of ending the suffering, and the truth of the path of how to end suffering. Four Noble Truths. That's why Buddhism is so much about suffering, trying to understand how we are in pain and what we are supposed to do with that pain. In Tibetan Buddhism or Zen Buddhism, it's very common to have the teaching of learning to stay with the pain, with the anger, with the regrets, with that which we usually want to run away from, to sit with it, and rather projecting it out to someone else to actually embrace it to a degree that we lean into it and learn to be with it. That's all packed into those four noble truths. 
And then the Eightfold Path, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness, all comes out of that, that helps us to be on the path to end the suffering so we can escape samsara, the endless cycle of birth and rebirth. Interesting again, we all associate these teachings with Buddha, right? Not the Buddha as in this story, the Buddha who right now is Gautama. No, we associate these teachings with Siddhartha, who then later becomes Buddha. And yet we see in this one little sentence that the suggestion is that those teachings have been around before him. And he was just picking it up and embracing them and integrating them. This picture is from last week. It's just a, a beautiful picture of Siddhartha and Govinda. Siddhartha and Govinda are really good friends, probably more than just best friends. They grew up with each other. They learned the same things. They have a strong, very strong bond. But what happens in this chapter three is something very sad. In this chapter three, Govinda dedicates his life to Gautama. He's fascinated by the teachings. He is totally drawn into the power and the wisdom of Gautama, the Buddha, of the enlightened one. And he wants to become a disciple. And he already made up his mind. And he starts to talk to Siddhartha and says, come with me. It was not even a question for Govinda that Siddhartha would not consider doing the same thing because they've been so close from early on. And yet Siddhartha tells him that choosing your own path is a good thing. And he lets him go. He says, it's not mine to do. He celebrates Govinda for choosing his own path. And he's telling him, I wish that you would go it up to its end, oh my friend. Then you shall find your salvation. That is probably one of the most compassionate things we can do in our lives. Is to have someone who is so close to us that we cannot even think of a life without them. And yet... We're doing the most compassionate thing by recognizing when they're choosing their path for their own salvation and then let them go and celebrate that decision with them. This part is very sad. It's sad for Govinda, also sad for Siddhartha. It's not that sadness is not part of this decision, this departure from each other. But at the same time, the truth that is behind those decisions is more important. And how often have we had to make that decision? Sometimes we were forced into that decision where it's taken away from us. We couldn't, we didn't have a choice. A partnership, a relationship breaks apart. We lose a job because of the economy and things like that. Even the little things in our lives nowadays, sometimes when we break, 
apart can cause a lot of pain. And yet, at the same time, one of the most compassionate things we can do for us is to start to learn and to see whether or not that is our path to go for our own salvation or let the other person go because it's for their greatest good. Finally, in the end of chapter 3, <clears throat> Siddhartha, in the book, he is alone with Godama. Siddhartha is asking Godama for an audience. And usually, you don't really get to talk to the Maharishi that often. <laughs> I remember in two years, um, I was kind of privileged. I had jobs that I had to do, and it was a little bit more often around my Maharishi, and I was able to communicate with him a little bit more often. But out of the three, 400 monks that we were, not many got to actually interact with him. It was rather seen as a privilege to even get some time with him. And here it's the same thing. He's probably surrounded by maybe not hundreds, maybe tens, you know, 30, 40, 50 monks, we don't know. And yet Siddhartha asks him very kindly, would you mind if I talk with you? And he's sharing his concerns about the teaching. He's sharing that he thinks the teachings are wonderful, but there's also a flaw in them. And there's this actual interaction about the flaw, and, uh, and yet he doesn't want to offend the Gautama. He doesn't want to offend the Buddha, but he clearly realizes that he's, it's not his to do. And even more than that, he comes to the realization that nobody will obtain salvation by means of teachings. That is the clear realization that Siddhartha had. And that is something I believe we can learn, especially in modern times. No one will ever get to salvation by teachings alone. It is not possible. Instead, but to be, depart from all teachings and all teachers and to reach my goal by myself or to die. <clears throat> it's a level of dedication that Siddhartha realizes that it doesn't matter, and if we put this in modern terms, we, he probably would say something, it doesn't matter how many books I read about enlightenment, it doesn't matter how many workshops I go to of people who I trust and believe really have attained a, a high level of consciousness. Let's say nowadays the Dalai Lama, Eckhart Tolle, it doesn't matter, Siddhartha probably will come to the realization nowadays, it doesn't matter how long I listen to, to, to Eckhart Tolle, how many books I read, or, or Deepak Chopra, whoever your favorite guru is, Brene Brown, you name it, right? It doesn't matter, it will not be enough. No teaching and no teacher and I would include the church as well, and religion, and spiritual paths and communities. No one will ever give us enough for us to find our own salvation. That's a bit scary, isn't it? You could basically say, well, what we're we doing here then? <laughs> Why do we even bother? 
Why do we bother coming every Sunday and challenge ourselves with some of those teachings? Why do we re even read books? Is it all for nothing? Why do we study the Bible? Of course, it's not nothing. But unless we apply it, what we learn in our daily lives, unless we integrate it and bring it to a wholeness within ourselves, it's almost meaningless. And that's what Siddhartha comes to realize in this chapter 3. That as much as he loves Gautama, as much as he believes Gautama himself reached enlightenment, he's absolutely clear on that. He is the one, he's the only one he knows who has reached what he so desperately wants. As much as he believes that, 100% is behind that, he realizes at the same time it's not going to be enough. And that is the crucial point in his life, in his journey. That's why he became one of the greatest teachers, because he had that realization. And that's why I believe unity as a movement has so much to give, so much that we can not even fathom how much we can give. Because our focus is on teachings, yes, but also on the application. It's never enough in unity just to read and to gain knowledge, but also to embrace and use what we learned in everyday life. So that's kind of like in the last part where he almost laments similar to Job. You know, Job, who takes about 40 chapters to kind of like cry about his own sorrow, right? Here we have it in less than a paragraph, fortunately. We don't need to read 40 chapters. But it's the same kind of thing here, what's going on. He is recognizing, I am deprived by the Buddha. I am deprived, and even more he has given to me. He has deprived me of my friend. He is lamenting Govinda. He's sad about losing him. The one who had believed in me and now believes in him, who had been my shadow and now is in Gautama's shadow. And here is the key. But he has given me Siddhartha, myself. Here's a little tip that I learned over many, many years of study. I started studying these principles very early on. And when I was in the ashram, I really came to one realization that the true guru, a true Maharishi, the way you recognize someone who is a true teacher is by one little thing. And it's that last part. If that guru gives you back to you, if that teacher teaches you how to be you more so, regardless of the teaching, regardless of the church, regardless of anything, but only because of you, that is a true teacher. That's how you recognize who is really true to you. Because that's the most selfless thing we can ever do, is to give up what we want, but are so immersed in what others 
deserve is to find themselves. So how do we link this now to the Christian stories, you might wonder, right? Because again, we have the difficulty if we just look at the stories that we learn a lot about Siddhartha's journey, how to become the Buddha, whereas when we look at the Gospels, we believe to read that Jesus was already fulfilled. Well, here I'm telling you that this is not so. <laughs> the relationship between Siddhartha and Govinda, and as you read the future chapters in this book, you will probably see this more and more, is very much like the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Remember, they're cousins, okay? They're only six months apart in birth. They're very close. They most likely grew up together. And most likely, they had a very similar life all along through their childhood because Elizabeth and Mary, Jesus' mother, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, they, they were close. They lived very close, and so it's very likely to assume that they had a relationship there not unlike Siddhartha and Govinda. And here again is from last week, the scene where John the Baptist is first almost refusing <laughs> wanting to baptize Jesus Christ because John recognized something very special in Jesus. But he's doing it anyway, because Jesus asks him to do. And if you read in the revealing word, uh, Charles Fillmore, co-founder of Unity, writes something very interesting about what John the Baptist represents. And that gives you a little hint how this all starts to come together. <clears throat> John the Baptist represents the natural man. And I always have to remember, remember, Charles Fillmore, old language. It's man and woman, always, right? Everyone, by gender, non-gender, everyone is included. Okay, that's what he means by man, everyone. Represents the natural everyone, right? The physical everyone. His face is turned toward the light in the measure that he recognizes and pays homage to the higher self within the individual. He's very close, but just not there yet. The second thing, that he writes about John the Baptist. It's the intellectual perception of truth. That's what it means metaphysically. That's how we interpret the stories of John the Baptist. Remember, he was a Samana, an ascetic John the Baptist. Jesus wasn't. He was very close to the truth. Often we say in modern times, John represents all of us who like to be intellectually enlightened who like to know a lot, who like to read all the books and then talk pretty about the books. It's just not enough. Instead, is not the true light which Jesus represents. Jesus goes the extra mile. Jesus embraces the teaching, not just knows about them. So you see here a very similar kind of dynamic going on. Um, obviously in a different world, different ways of representation. And then here is the moment when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, and the heavens open up, opens up, and the dove comes down, and the voice speaks from the heavens, right? 
the heaven was opened, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Traditionally, we see this as a separate action. We see this as something that happens outside of Jesus. It happens in a way separate from us. And we come to the belief, unfortunately, that there's so much we need to do in our lives in order to create it so that will happen to us. But from a unity perspective, what we believe this actually points to is just what Siddhartha is experiencing when he realizes that what Gautama actually gave him is himself. The baptism of Jesus is the moment when Jesus realizes truly who and what he was. It was not so much God speaking to him from outside of himself, but him realizing the Holy Spirit within himself and then have that voice speak to him clearly, giving him the idea that he is one. Charles Fillmore has more to say about that, about understanding. Two ways how we get understanding. Either we use the guidance of spirit or we blindly just keep experiencing, right? Ever done this in your life? Okay. Sometimes we use our intuition and, you know, happens to be our guiding spirit and everything works really well. And sometimes we bump our heads against some walls and some obstacles for a few years until we get to our point. Both actually work. They both give us understanding, right? One is a little bit more painful than the other. And the beauty is it's our choice. We can choose to run into obstacles all the time, or we can choose to do it a little bit differently. Which brings us to awakening. A very short chapter, as you can see, like four or five pages. Not that much, you would think. And yet, there is so much to learn. In awakening now, we have Siddhartha walking on his own. He's now leaving what he thought is his path he needed to take in order to reach samsara, sorry, the moksha or nirvana, the end of samsara, enlightenment. In a way, can you empathize with that? I'm sure that when you for a lifetime believe this is how you're getting somewhere and then you come to the realization that that's just not it, and just for a moment or for a little while, you realize you're all alone and you have to regroup and you have to figure it out anew. Just imagine that's for a moment where Siddhartha is. Again, he's still in this lamenting mode, Job mode, I would say. Right? I was afraid of myself. I was fleeing from myself as he's looking back into Atman. Remember Atman? often translated as the soul, but it's actually so much more than that. It's beyond the individualized idea of a soul. Atman is going back into the source itself. In his search, he realized that everything he did was not enough. 
I searched Brahman. I was willing to dissect myself and peel off all of its layers to find the core of all peels in its unknown interior, the Atman, life, the divine part, the ultimate part. But I have lost myself in the process. Anyone resonates with that? Right? Trying all these things, going to this temple and doing this silent retreat and going there, reading this book and having this workshop and watching these YouTube videos and doing everything we possibly can think of. And in the end, only to realize we're still lost. We're still not where we want to go, want to be. That's where he is right now. He's saying, I do not want to kill and dissect myself any longer. He's pointing toward the consistent underlying judgment of not feeling good enough. I need to be an ascetic. I need to leave my family. I need to do all those things to reach what I truly want, to realize Atman. And he realizes here that he no longer wants to punish himself. I no longer want to kill myself over it. Anyone felt like that before? Right? Where we get so rigorous about our spiritual practices and yet they're not giving us what we truly want. And we get so tired of doing all these things we're supposed to do and yet it doesn't give us what we truly desire. I want to learn from myself, want to be my student, want to get to know myself the secret of Siddhartha. That's the turning point where he realizes, I need to get to know myself. The teachings are fine. There's nothing wrong with them. He acknowledges the teachings as wonderful. The Samana teachings, beautiful. Learning to step away from the desires, being attached to those desires all the time. Learning to turn within more often all important teachings, but he wants to go further. He wants to truly know himself, not through anyone else's teachings, but only through the teaching within himself. What does that remind you of? What happens after Jesus is baptized? There's a hint here. Come on, you know it. 40 days in the desert, right? There's a reason for that. And here is where you see another connection between the awakening chapter where Siddhartha comes to the true realization that it cannot be anything outside of himself that gives him what he's looking for. And Jesus very much has a very similar experience going into the desert for 40 days, being challenged by the devil, right? When you look at the text, or remember, we know, don't even have to go into the text, but there's these three temptations. The first one, turning stone into bread, and then Jesus saying, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. The second one, to take control of all the people, right? To have the power that the Satan had. And Jesus again says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him, because that's what the devil asked Jesus to do. If I give you all this power, then you have to believe in me. But Jesus said, no, I have to believe in God, which in other terms, in unity, we believe is the exact same thing as saying, 
to believe in myself, my capital self. Take this in for a moment. To believe in God means to believe in my capital self. That is the teaching here. And the third one, throwing him off the cliff, you know, throw himself off the cliff and then wait for the angels to grab him so he wouldn't die, right? That's just the third temptation. And he says, Jesus answered him, it is said, do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. All these things, in a lot of ways, are very similar to what Siddhartha is going through. They're no longer about the teachings outside of themselves because we all recognize, even the most traditional Christian scholars will probably recognize that this is about an internal journey, that this is something that happens within us. Whenever we believe we're more powerful than we actually are, or when we are swayed to use our power in certain ways that are not aligned with the desires that we truly have in ourselves. All these temptations matter, and these temptations teach us something about ourselves. I like this picture because the devil is gone. This is how I imagine Jesus would have looked like Probably not white and blonde and blue-eyed here, but as we know, but that's probably how he would look like after he realized that in the end, it's about being true to himself. And that is truly when his ministry started. And I believe in that chapter, even though Siddhartha will learn a lot more as he will see in the next few chapters, I believe it's that crucial moment when Siddhartha realizes I need to learn about myself. I think the same happens to Jesus here. And that's when he, according to the gospel, started his ministry. And it was not long until he walked again, that's Siddhartha, in long strides, started to proceed swiftly and impatiently, heading no longer for home, no longer to his father, no longer back. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a relationship with our families or friends. It doesn't mean that we have to go into a cave and do absolutely nothing anymore. It just means that the true journey, spiritually speaking, for all of us cannot be attached to any of this. And in that moment, he decides that he will not return what he initially planned not because he doesn't love his father or his mother or his family, but because he loves himself more, because he wants this so much more for himself and, as we know later, in the end, for everyone else. Going back to understanding, Charles Fillmore says, intellectual understanding of truth is a tremendous step John the Baptist was a great teacher. He was seen even as the Messiah by, by some. He was absolutely a great teacher, helped so many people in his lifetime. Siddhartha, at this point, already knew a lot. He was a Brahmin's son. He already studied scripture. He studied meditation. He was tremendous already as a teacher. He studied with the Samanas. He learned the teachings of Gautama, 
and in many ways he adopted those teachings as well. But it's still just a step, because in the end, what we really want to get to is the spiritual understanding that is the quickening of the spirit within. We want to have the heavens open to us. We want to have the Holy Spirit come down to us or come from within us, out of us. We want to find that moment in our lives when we really learn and accept that in the end, it's about getting to know ourselves, the higher self. So unveiling wisdom, we're going to start our meditation in a minute. I'm just giving Joe the heads up here. <laughs> unveiling wisdom, as you can see in those two chapters, and again, it's probably about 15 pages to read both chapters. Not that long, right? I really recommend that you read those chapters and consider them for yourself. The power of the teaching in those chapters is so tremendous that to truly unveil the wisdom, the wisdom we need to learn to turn within and learn to look at ourselves and be willing to learn about ourselves and not escape from it by looking at others and complaining about others or celebrating others and not ourselves. Unveiling wisdom, the journey within, is how we're now setting our rest of the series up and see through Siddhartha's eyes what that is. And with that, let us take a moment in meditation. So take a moment and breathe a little bit more deeply than you usually would. Allow your breath to go deep and fill your body. And literally now turn your mind and heart and turn it within. Close your eyes if that's comfortable for you. Lower your gaze. Allow your senses to turn within. Allow yourself for a moment to only focus on yourself. Giving yourself a chance to find Atman, the true self. In this meditation, as we do it for ourselves, but we also do it in community, there is a chance for all of us to lift the veil 
of illusion. Lift the veil of Maya, allowing Brahman to be seen, the truth to be seen. Allowing us to see what we truly want in life. Allowing for a moment to paint the picture magically. Use a magic brush and just paint whatever is in our hearts. Just forget for a moment all the attachments and the responsibilities Just put that aside for a moment. Yes, they're still there, and they will be there soon enough. But take that magic brush and find what's deeply in our hearts, what resonates with our true self. Then paint, paint the houses, paint the locations, the countries, the towns, the cities, the people that we want to have around us so that we are inspired to become the true self. To embrace all the teachings that we have learned all the degrees that we have mastered, all the accomplishments that we have made, and to celebrate those and give thanks to those and yet at the same time to let go and realize what we truly want. Every breath is a moment and an opportunity to let go, to forgive, to be gentle and kind, to be loving and compassionate. Every breath is an opportunity to give thanks and allow the things in our lives to blossom to shine, to be full and clear and beautiful and graceful. In that gratitude, we recognize the depth of our desires, the depth of our love for ourselves, the depth of that God 
that we know so well, the God that we express in every moment. And we say thank you to that. Thank you to be alive. Thank you to be willing to be here today. Thank you to take a moment in quiet contemplation. Thank you for the teachings that inspire us. And thank you for the people that show us our path to our true self. And so it is. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. You just heard this week's message and meditation. For the live streams and more information, go to unityfortworth.org. 